Hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 6 through 8, verse 5. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the, living, the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. 
From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke, the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. So part of me was tempted as she was reading that to be like, okay, figure that out. And just walk off. I'll be honest with you guys, when you hear that read out loud, you're like, what in the world are we talking about? Are you really preaching on this today? And you're just confused. And if you're not confused, um, uh, I'd like to know why you're not confused. <laughs> it's not easy text. And this is why many people don't like to preach, or don't like to preach, don't preach through the book of Revelation, right? So far, up to this point, it's been fairly easy. 
right? We taught the letters to the churches. We had um, the vision of the throne room in four and five. But then this now starts the controversial part of the book of Revelation. So I'm going to be honest with you guys. I got a lot of material, so bear with me. Let's dive into this together and may it edify you, may it glorify God. As we dive into this, guys, we know that people have fascination with this book because it talks about what many people consider the end times, apocalyptic literature. And historically, people have had so much fascination with the end times. We had so many different means of predicting when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what's going to happen. We made a guy named Nostradamus famous like over and over again, even though he wasn't even that good during his time. Somehow he came back up and like 20 years ago, got, became famous again. We had a lot of vague prophecies. We had scientific means. We even had scientific means. We had Y2K. Right? The world was going to end because of Y2K, because zeros and ones were going to destroy the world. Right? Be honest with me, for those of you guys who are old enough, who are aware enough when this happened, what, did you honestly think something was going to happen? Yeah? I was a little concerned. <laughs> I was a little ready for it. We had the whole Mayan calendar thing. You guys hear about that? You guys know about that one? 2012, the Mayan calendar ended. Right? It wasn't just because they were like, back then they are like, 2012 seems like a big number, let's just stop it there. We were like, no, they must know something we didn't know. And the world will end there. And most popular of all crazy theories of how the world's gonna end comes from the Bible, right? Because a lot of people are, they enjoy this stuff, they, they enjoy making up some cool theories or fun things or conspiracies or as they dive into it, the, the book of Revelation full of so much imagery it's hard to interpret correctly. They correlate COVID with the plagues. They correlate the UN with the enemy beast. There's so much that people try to mistake in the Bible here. They try to make it relative to whatever is happening in their current time. But yet, the book of Revelation does address some future stuff, but it does not do it by predicting every event that's going to transpire in the Middle East or in the global economy. Revelation said gives us a big picture of future events by reminding us that God is sovereign over all affairs of man and that whatever comes to pass does so because God decreed it. Guys, hear this. The great purpose of this book is to remind the church that Jesus is enthroned and that God will bring all of human history to a great and glorious goal, the second coming of Jesus. That's what this book is about. It's not about us figuring out, ooh, this must mean that this is China and this is Russia and then this is happening here. No, that's not what it's about. And so as we move along in our season of Revelation, we're in the midst of John's second vision. And one thing I hope you've noticed so far is this intentionality of how structured the book of Revelation is and its use of numbers carries so much significance. So for example, the number seven so far for us. Opening chapter, John saw a heavenly vision where Christ was seen walking in the midst of seven lampstands. These, we're told, are the seven churches. And then that heavenly vision of Christ walking in the midst of the seven lampstands gave way to chapters two and three, which contains letters to these seven churches. Now, seven was a, a number that com- showed the completion, the fullness, the wholeness, of the, the, the holiness of his called people. In chapters four and five, John records for us another heavenly vision. And in this vision, everything focuses upon God and throne. It starts off in chapter four. But then after that, Jesus takes center stage. And this time he appears not one like a son of man, but as a lamb that had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And remember that in this vision, Christ is seen interacting with another object with seven parts to it. And it's not the lampstand, but a scroll with seven seals on it. 
And God holds it in his right hand, gives it to Christ, for he alone was found worthy to open it. What is on this scroll? Guys, this is what the scroll symbolizes. It symbolizes this, that God has a written decree. He has a plan for human history. John is invited up in heaven to see that he quotes what must take place after this. The scroll being written on the front and back is there to show the completeness of the scroll. And the number seven also shows that this is a whole number. The will of God will be done. So in other words, Jesus has been given the scroll that has the fullness of the plans of God he has for accomplishing his mission in this world. So John, Jesus then opens the scroll. Now this isn't a future event for John. This is his vision in, in the year 92, 93, 94, 95, 96 in the Isle of Patmos. In this vision, he says this is a, a now event. Jesus opened the scroll. It's the inauguration of what we call the church age. Jesus, the lamb that was slain, inaugurated the church age. He opened the scroll. And the scroll reveals God's purposes during the last days. That period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And the sealing of the scroll begins a pattern in which God will reveal dramatic information about his plan of redemptive history. So guys, the book of Revelation is not written to predict specific future events. The apostle John is not to be confused with Nostradamus. And in apocalyptic literature such as this, John does not attempt for us to understand the things he reveals fully literally. Rather, get this, the apostle paints vivid word pictures depicting the course of redemptive history and the ongoing struggle between the church and the already defeated foe, the devil, and in his final days as the kingdom of God advances. Dr. Kim Middleberger states this, this means that the book of Revelation is essentially a divinely revealed commentary upon the Old Testament. The key to understanding this book correctly is not to look for particular verses which explain current events. Rather, we must understand John's symbolic language in the light of the Old Testament. John's visions are intended to explain how Jesus Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecy and how God will bring all things into submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So the reality was so important, I want you to get this, this reality is so important to the original readers of this vision. You guys have to remember, who, who is John writing to? It was the Christians who faced a powerful enemy in the state, that's the Roman Empire. They had to acknowledge Caesar as Lord or else risk life and livelihood. They were surrounded by paganism in all its forms. They had false teachers constantly trying to undermine the purity of the gospel. They were persecuted people. They were a suffering people. And it was to these struggling, persecuted people, God gives them a heavenly perspective. This way they know that their struggles are not in vain and that Jesus is enthroned and he has a final word. The struggling people needed to be, get a glimpse of that their struggling had a reason that there is hope at the end of it. I shared earlier that Pastor Danny's father passed away suddenly. And I was with him on Tuesday night after he heard the news. And one thing that Pastor Danny said to me in the midst of his sorrow and loss, he just said this, he's, he just broke down, he just, I just need to look upon the throne room, Lawrence. I just need to see Jesus enthroned. And Pastor Danny said this with tears in his, on his face. He was heartbroken by the sorrow of this world, so he, he just wanted to get a glimpse of what is really happening in the world and what it's all for. My people, the message this morning to you is this. Take a glimpse of heaven and see that Jesus is firmly enthroned. 
that he knows you, he walks amongst us. This world, all that happens in it sometimes doesn't make any sense, and it's still very hard, but guys, understand that God has a scroll written on the front and back, seven parts to it, that he fully has his plan set, and we need to trust in his goodness to produce a future and advance the kingdom as redeeming all that is broken. May this morning you get a glimpse of that heaven. May this break be a break in the reality as you know it and give you a fuller, firmer, truer glimpse of reality. May this text do that for you today. So before we turn to this text, a couple of things I want to be said about how we understand. From here on out, we'll find the series of judgments. It's going to be difficult. We have the seals and we have the trumpets and we have the, 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 the bowls. And it's just a series of judgments that are done in seven things, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It's all a series of judgments all the way up to Revelation chapter 16. And honestly, we should not read these sections as though they were a histor- uh, historical narrative in which they occur in a chronological order. Don't read these as if to say the seals happen first, then the trumpets happen, and then the bowls happen. Right? That's not the way to read it. It's actually a rather popular tool in apocalyptic literature, and it's where they, these kind of series, they, they overlap, they cover each other. It's called recipe, um, uh, bleh, sorry, lost my spot. The statement's chief important for trumpet and bowl judgment. The bowl, they, they intensify as you get over time, so it's not meant to be read in chronological order. It's meant to be understood as going on simultaneously. It's a retelling of this course of history from different perspective is a key feature of apocalyptic literature. It's technically known as uh, recapitulation. So Dennis Johnson, a professor at Westminster Seminary, likens each of these reoccurring visions and cycles to different camera angles uh, upon the same event. So the first vision, John looks at the present age from the perspective of Christ's continuing presence with his people. Then in Revelation 4 and 5, John describes the scene before the heavenly throne. And then beginning in Revelation 6, John will describe the course of the present age through the lens of the series of ongoing judgments and culminate in the order of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is he seals the trumpets and the bowls or all different views, different lenses of how to look at the history that's happening in the church age, namely after Jesus Christ inaugurated his kingdom until he comes back. You guys with me so far? Right? Different views, different lenses. In order to understand this pattern better, it's helpful to turn to the Gospels. Jesus addresses this same subject in Matthew 24 when he speaks of the signs of the end of the age in response to the disciples' question. So this is what he says in chapter 24. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Sound similar to anything? Sounds similar to the seals so far? Jesus describes cycles of wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and so on, found throughout the church age before this return, and he describes it as being birth pains. While intense pain characterizes the entire process, early on the contractions are followed by periods of rest, and you know, it's, not as, it's not as drastic, the pains. But as labor proceeds, it becomes more intense, and periods of relief less and less. So very much like this, he's saying that this signing, intensifying cycle of signs of the end precedes the Lord's return. 
But all this leading up to it, a lot of all these horsemen and the seals leading up to it is something that is, is happening, has happened, and will continue to happen through the church age. And they continue through the course of our present age, and they'll reach their climax when the return of Jesus to judge the world and make all things new. So do you see the context that we're in so far? So let's dive in. This Revelation 6-3 is a direct continuation of the vision which began in 4 and 5. And as the vision of the heavenly throne unfolds in 4, John shifts his focus from the glory of the one seated on the throne to the lamb who was slain, who alone is worthy to open the mysterious scroll. And the lamb is worthy because he's purchased men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be a kingdom of priests. And because Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, has died for his people, removed the guilt of their sins, and in addition kept God's law perfectly, the Lamb has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, making him alone worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. And when he does so, all heaven worships him. It's this dramatic scene as the heavenly choir sings praises to the Lamb, who has redeemed his people through the shedding of his blood. And the material in Revelation 6 is a continuation of this vision and in, in verse one, it says, or there it says, John washes the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now in order to understand the significance of this vision and the four horsemen mentioned in the first four seal judgments, we need to recall the words of Zechariah, not count on pop culture and their usage of the four horsemen, right? I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot of TV shows and movies out there where they mention the four horsemen. They're like, ooh, it's bad stuff. Or they picture literally like people on horses. Or if you watched X-Men, there's like, yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but in the words of Zechariah 6, when the prophet saw four colored horses and their chariots symbolizing the four winds of heaven. In Zechariah's prophecy, the horses represent God's judgment upon the enemies of Judah going out to the four corners of the earth. So the people who knew the Old Testament knew Zechariah's prophecies. Here now, the four horsemen. What does that symbolize? Four, the number that Danny talked about last week, symbolizes the world. This is judgment of God upon the world. And as we've seen in previous weeks in the book of Revelation, number four, I said, symbolizes the earth and the world. So in John's vision, the four horsemen go forth to the very edge of the earth for the purpose of bringing God's judgment upon all nations who oppose God's will. Now, all the earth is affected by the devastation brought about these horsemen. And the horsemen not only bring about the vindication of God's people through that series of judgments found here, but these judgments literally mirror the things mentioned that Jesus mentions about the end times in Matthew 24. These are the four, first four seals match up to the four horsemen, and the final three seals, including the fifth seal, which is the cry of the martyrs, the sixth seal, the return of Christ, and the seventh seal, which leads to absolute silence in heaven. These seals and judgments are complete. There's nothing left to say in all of heaven as they stand in awe of God. Because the Lamb is worthy to open this scroll, he is the one who empowers these writers to go forth and bring desolation upon the earth. Now, there are some people who like to think of this first seal as Jesus or as a church, right? He's a church, he goes forth, he has a crown on, he's riding a white horse, he's conquering. Especially compared to the Revelation 19, where Jesus does come upon riding a white horse coming in judgment. But this interpretation often given the white horse rider here is that of Christ bringing forth, but there are good reasons to, that I disagree with that interpretation. In Revelation 19, Jesus wields a sword and wears many crowns. While in Revelation, Revelation 6, the rider has a bow and a single crown. 
Therefore, most likely the rider is not Christ, but the first judgment who leads these three riders to bring devastation, war, and famine. In ancient times, the white horses were often symbols of conquest. So when the rider of the white horse goes forth to conquer, he unleashes all the judgments that comes forward. In other words, guys, what people understood, horses, and this is for us why it's difficult, because most of us, when we think of horses, we think, oh, cute. That's what we think, right? We think, oh, nice, I want to ride one. I don't ever want to ride a horse, by the way. Complete side note. The idea of me riding a horse, I don't care how big and strong the horse, I'm like, no, I just feel bad for it. It just be, wouldn't, wouldn't be a good idea. I don't understand anybody how they ride a horse. I just feel bad for it. Okay, side note. And that's the idea of horses for us. We think they're cute. But for you got to think of the people of the ancient Near East, horses symbolize military might. Horses, cavalry, symbolized that you had power. Horses symbolized warfare and conquest. Horses were not used as everyday farm labor. Horses were expensive, they were big, but they can symbolize power and conquest and military might. So for them, four horsemen didn't symbolize four cute animals. Four horsemen meant military, powerful might, aggression, war. And the first rider goes forth, and this is what it symbolizes, white horse meant conquest. And think about how much these people understood about, being, about warfare. This is a land, guys, I want you to understand this. In the history of the ancient Near East, this was warfare, this is warlords, this is conquering empires, constantly conquering land over land all the time. And now at this point, they understood the fact that the Roman Empire came and swept through the land. They understood what it meant to be conquered. Then the second seal, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To, give, to him was given a large sword. The rider of the white horse symbolizes conquest, while the rider of the red horse symbolizes bloodshed and warfare, which breaks out upon the entire earth. And don't we know that to be true? What is it the prayer that so many people pray? We want peace on earth. And that's the, the song that we sing all the time. Guys, can I tell you this very truthful statement? We're not going to have peace on earth until Jesus Christ comes back and brings peace on earth. But he is going to do it. He is. These commentaries speculate about the relationship between the first and second seal. The main point is that together these two riders remove peace from earth. And that's a result of sin. We won't have peace on earth because we are sinful human beings. And we'll find something to fight over. It'll be anything. Gosh, even in this country, right? In this great country where we have more than enough to eat, typically, typical things people fight for is like food, drink, land, stuff like that. In this country, we have more than enough to eat, more than enough to do, more than enough opportunities. We still constantly fight. Now, John sees the lamb open the third seal. In verse 5, it says, When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked there before me was a black horse. His rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts for barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And I loved it because as Sarah was reading this, my wife looked at me like, what? <laughs> Historical background is necessary to understand the meaning of this particular judgment. In John's day and age, a quart of wheat was an average day's supply for a soldier. And the amount of that of wheat usually costs a typical worker, which is one-eighth a denarius. But after the black horse goes forth, the price of grain is inflated 800%. 
Barley was much cheaper, but was eaten by the poor since it did not have the same value of wheat. So three quarters of barley for a day's wages was an outlandish, crazy, inflated price. But notice that the oil and wine are not affected. What it's symbolizing is the black horse symbolizes famine and the resultant economic turmoil. Although famine and the related hardship result from God's judgment, it's not complete, it's not total. God is holy and will punish human sin, but God's also gracious and long-suffering. This tells us that God's judgments are restrained in some sense and are limited in their scope to the end of time. So this is known as common grace. Like grace, common grace is given to all that. He doesn't wipe out everything. He doesn't make it outlandish. He brings forth situations where we can still survive. And it could be much worse, but God is restraining his wrath and judgment upon the earth. So this symbolizes famine. It symbolizes economic turmoil. It symbolizes all of a sudden a loaf of bread costs $50 or a gallon of milk costs $100. That's what this is symbolizing here. Hard times, economically, poverty. Think like Great Depression and then some. Verses 7 3, John sees the lamb open the fourth seal. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. The rider of the pale horse, and this pale horse is the actual literal translation, but what they're actually going for is is for us to term what it means to, like, oh, you look green. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that color that you get when you just, like, you're about to throw up. That's what they mean. They, they call it pale because, oh, you look pale, right? That's the actual thing. But it's, it, 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 the connotation of this really is that the color of sickness. You know, oh, like kind of color. His name is Death, and Hades closely follows him when he goes for, forth. Remember that Revelation 1, Jesus held in his hands the keys of death and of Hades, symbolizing his power to liberate people from death and its consequences. Now the rider on the pale horse is given the power to kill, bring war, and famine upon the earth. And calamities intensify. Now here's the thing. We see this, right? Throughout the course of church history, we've seen plagues. We've seen, I mean, honestly, I say we see plagues. Aren't we in the middle of an epidemic right now? We've seen the reality that we live in the reality of the fourth horseman. That we've seen plagues all throughout the course of history. We've seen it all throughout the course of the church age. We've faced difficult times. We've seen the truth of the third horseman. We've seen inflation times. We've seen difficult economic times. We've seen times where people starve. We've seen nations now, other than this one, are in situations just like that. And so there's no point arguing that this this is reality. We are in this age. We're in the age where the four horsemen are here. We're in the church age. Calamities are here. Difficulties are here. I don't want to just make it light like that and say calamities and difficulties. I want to say pain and suffering is here. Struggles are real. People are dying. Conquest is happening. People are fighting. There is war happening. And when the Lamb opens the scroll, which has been sealed until the time of the end, we see this reality that is ours in this night time. And the seven sealed judgments, we see the first cycle of this judgment, and we, sh- we see that this is our reality in this time. We see that in this time, this is happening, and it's difficult. But then we move on, and we see that starting in the fifth seal, we see something different happening. With the opening of the fifth seal, the scene dramatically shifts from earth to heaven. While the earth convulses and its people wreak havoc upon one another, pieces removed. It's only natural then, if you're the reader of this, you're John's people, you're like, okay, yeah, this, this is happening, this stinks. Really, what, come on, give me some hope here. 
People wonder about their own fate. Are, are, we, are you leaving us then on this earth just to die, God? And the saints in heaven cry out for justice. And John sees the souls of martyred saints under the altar where sacrificial blood had been shed. And there's not only proof that life continues on after death, that the soul lives on, but also that God will call his people to him. And while the martyrs cry for God's will to be done, we read in verse 11 that each of the martyrs was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Or killed just as they had been. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ, symbolized by the white robes, the saints in heaven anticipate the great and glorious day with the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowl judgments from their course. And God will save his people and remove the state of sin from every corner of the earth. Guys, hear this. Just think about it. You're, you're part one of John's people and you're seeing suffering. You're in the middle of suffering. You're in the middle of persecution. The empire, emperors have killed your people, take away your livelihood. And you're in the middle of this. John's giving you this vision of heaven, this incredible look of Jesus. He's enthroned. He's opening the seals. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. I see it. The four horsemen are happening right now. That makes sense. I get it. But now all of a sudden then they're saying, okay, fifth seal, I need some hope. And that's exactly what God gives us in this vision. He says, but hear this, those of you who have died, those of you who have gone on and you haven't seen the fullness of the end, don't worry, you're there with God. This hopeful hope that we have, this future that says, Your, this life is not all there is, your soul lives on. And though you haven't seen the end to completion, when you die, you're gonna be with me. And you're clothed in white. You're made righteous. And you're with me, you're made righteous, and now you're together. And it's not a complaining, it's not a, God, how long is it gonna be? But it's like, oh, a celebratory, God, how long? And God answers back by saying, until they all come. Until my scroll is fully opened. Until my plan comes to fruition. To all I've called, your brothers and your sisters, Come. And he say, okay, okay, I can live in the midst of persecution because of that. Okay, I can face the four horsemen because of that. Okay, you give me purpose in my life because of that. Okay, you gave me a glimpse into heaven. Thank you for that hope. Do you see that? In the fifth seal, we learn that judgment associated with the first four seals, war, famine, plague, and death, will not come to an end until all have finished, God's plan is fully done, until there's a new heaven and a new earth. And then John says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, a sun turned black like sackcloth, made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as late figs dropped from a fig tree, when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. John's original audience knew firsthand the destructive power of earthquakes. Severe quakes rocked Asia Minor in AD 17 and the island of Cyprus in AD 76. AD 79, the entire Roman world was shocked by the destruction of the city of Pompeii. So John warns that a great earthquake, far greater than anything known to man, will yet rock the earth. And I'm sure John wasn't, didn't have just in mind geological history of Asia Minor when he wrote this. But more importantly, John had in mind the Old Testament background of the wrath of God in which earthquakes were frequently connected to God's coming to earth to deliver justice. But most importantly, these signs appear in Matthew 24. Once again, when Jesus speaks of the signs of the end, I'll remind you of what it says. It says, immediately after the distress of those days, 
that is the distress associated with the last days and scroll judgments, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us its light. The stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from, from one end of the heavens to the other. This is the same picture that he, John is trying to take his people back to Matthew and saying, guys, do you understand? Chapter seal six symbolizes that the end of all the seals is coming. Jesus is coming back. He's speaking of the same event. He's speaking of an event that is a cosmos and a world that will be purified and remade and renewed by the coming king. The king who is and who is coming again. That's the beauty of seal six. God, I want you to understand that. I know we think of it as such purely destructive language. We think of these horrible language of the sky turning black and or sun turning black and red, the moon and the stars and the earthquake. But it's, it's actually recreation language here. It is recreation. Think about Genesis, the way Genesis was spoken. This is recreation. And what it's saying is Jesus is going to come back. He's going to judge and he's going to redeem all that was lost and broken. And moving on, before John takes us to the opening of the seventh seal, there's this dramatic interlude in chapter seven. And having heard this frightening word of judgment to come, God gives further assurances to his people. In Revelation 7, 1, we see four angels who restrain God's wrath during the sealed judgments, as well as two, the two images of God's protection of his people. First of these images are the 12 tribes of Israel and the reference to 144,000. And the second is 9 through 17, where John gives a vision of great multitude clothed in white robes. The first four angels restrain God's wrath on the earth, and he holds it back. Read in Revelation 14, 1, that this seal is the name of Christ and of God, and may be connected to Christian baptism in the name of the Holy Trinity. In Revelation 14, 1, it says a seal that is placed upon them, it literally says it's a seal of Christ and their God. So it very much seems like a correlation to the baptism in the Trinity. It was stands in direct contrast to Satan's uh, satanic counterfeit, which is called the mark of the beast. Here's what it says. And I'm not going to read it all again, but I'm going to put it up on the screen. According to John, then I've heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000. Can you put that on the screen? The tribes of each tribe. Now this total number sealed mentioned by John, this 144,000, is often the much, of spe much speculation. Since the twelve troubles are listed, some argue that this is a reference to a believing Jewish remnant or so they believed a Jewish remnant that's gonna be in the future times saved. But since they're sealed with the name of God and of Christ, as they've been promised to be the overcomers of the church in Philadelphia, they're most likely called servants of God. The number 144,000 is more likely symbolic of the whole church, which includes believing Jews and Gentiles. Here's what I mean by that, okay? Here's what I mean by that. The number 144,000, this people, is symbolic of, uh, what's it divisible by, anybody? 12. How many tribes of Israel are there? How many baskets were left over? How many disciples were there? What the number 12 symbolizes is the fullness of the called people of God. Do you hear me? And this number, what it's literally saying is it's 12 times 12. That's the fullness of all the people. God's called people will be in relationship and will be sealed by God himself. It's not, an, it's not a literal number. It's not an exact 144. Do you hear that? 
And as a number of commentators have pointed out, this particular arrangement of 12 tribes, the 12 tribes that are listed, is actually found nowhere throughout the Old Testament. Right, that's actually one of the things that I had one of my people I was talking to about this um, subject, this text with, and I was like, did you know that this listing of tribes is actually listed like this nowhere else in the Bible? It ha- in this arrangement, Dan is left off and Levi and Joseph are on. So some commentaries believe that Dan was left off due to the sinful ways of that tribe. But what's most important to note is that it's a complete number of the covenant people first called by God to be the people of God. In other words, God is calling, he's faithful from his original promises to Abraham to call people and make them as the multitudes of the stars are in the sky. And he's been faithful to his original promises to call covenant people to him. So the 144 are symbolic, therefore, of the church of Jesus Christ, purchased by the blood of the lamb, clothed in his righteousness, and sealed with God's name. And to be protected from God's wrath, which is coming upon the earth. And while verses 1 through 8 view the church from a perspective of history of the covenant, which now includes the Gentiles, scenes verses 9 through 17 emphasize the fact that the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth and has brought all of God's elect from every nation to the church of Jesus. Verse 9, John now testifies about what he sees. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Guys, do you get this incredible imagery? And literally this is saying that the great covenant promise made to, God made to Abraham that through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed is gloriously fulfilled here. This interlude between seal six and seven is literally proclaiming that God will not miss just not even one that was called by him. And people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. And it's in fact so large that John can't count all of them. This is a church triumphant, now enjoying heavenly rest from its earthly labor and tribulation. Its members are clothed in righteousness and there are no more tears. And they're singing Hosanna and waving palm branches. And this glorious scene of God's redeemed people, yet another cause for worship. And it says, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And this interlude concludes with this amazing vision. They're before the throne, before him day and night and serving him. And he sits on the throne and there's a, he, he's sanctuarying over them. This is divine protection that's promised to his people. He says, never will they be hungry again, never will they thirst again. It's because Christ is their living bread and he's their living water. And then he said, he will be their shepherd and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, guys, with this scene, the church triumphant before us, the interlude is over, this dramatic interlude is over, and the first cycle of judgment kind of seems to end quite unexpectedly as the seventh seal is opened. And John reports that the Lamb opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Kind of a weird statement, right? Everything else happens. First seal opens, bam, horsemen, horsemen, horsemen. Four times, horsemen, crazy scene. You know, first five, and all of a sudden you see presentation of the saints martyred before, you know, the number six, there's earthquakes and dramatic, and all of a sudden seven. You're like, what? It's just silence. What does that mean? 
You'd expect more of a kind of a epiphany or a climactic end and more of a, a boom, symbols kind of situation after the seventh seal is open, but that's not what happens. Silence for half an hour. Zephaniah spoke of silence in connection with the day of the Lord. He said, be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. Habakkuk did the same, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let earth, all the earth be silent before him. Once his first cycle of seal judgments is complete, God had redeemed his people. He brought final judgment upon all those who reject his son. And after all the earthquakes and the cosmic shudders and the heavens and all this kind of stuff, it was silent. Does that feel like anything else? Was that, does that make you think of anything else? Creation. What did God do after he did this ridiculous work of bringing down, opening up heaven, stars, and oceans, and earth, this crazy work of incredible creation? What does he do? He rests. Do you see how this judgment language also fits in with creation language? Do you guys see that? Don't miss this, because this is so key. His judgment language fits in with creation language. So what God is doing in his judgment is he's recreating, rewriting, reordering. And so when he's done, when the seventh seal happens, he sits and all the earth is silent before him. Yes, in awe and majesty and wonder, but also in just rest. It's done. Can I tell you guys, there some of us are in this world and we feel like we're running a rat race. We might go from trouble after trouble to suffering after suffering. And there's some in this world who just would love to experience rest. God promises that. There are some of us who are struggling with tears in our eyes, wondering what's the purpose of all this pain? What do we do with this? And he's promising to wipe every tear from your eye. There's some of us in this world who are struggling with the understanding of why is judgment happening? Why do we have to have famine? Why do we have to have plague? And guys, I, don't, I can't answer every single question, but I do know this, that in the midst of it, God has a plan for us, and he's redeeming his people, and he's using us to be agents of his recreation even now. What people do you see? Jesus is enthroned. God's plan is being accomplished. Can we live in light of that? Like Pastor Danny said, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of questions, in the midst of difficulties, can we just ask God to stop and break into our perceived reality, open up our vision into the throne room of heaven, and like John, can see that Jesus, you're enthroned and you have purpose. Even when I don't understand my cancer, or I don't understand my pain, I don't understand my death, I don't understand losing my job, I don't understand losing my loved one, I don't understand the issues that I face, I can still look into the throne room of heaven and say, Jesus, you are enthroned and you're doing something in this world. World. May that be us. May we choose to trust in a God who conquered by dying. And as we do so, as we do so, may you rest comfortably knowing that Jesus can open the scroll and he will be faithful to complete the work he started. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word that comes from the book of Revelation, even though it's difficult, even though it's extensive, God, even though it's 
hard to understand at times, God. We thank you that you've given us this beautiful word, God, this beautiful promise that Jesus is enthroned, that he is in heaven, he is ruler over all, he is the lion that became the lamb. And we can trust that he'll fulfill the work of the scroll that you prepared. So God, may we live in such confidence and in light of such a reality. God, may we be instruments of your redeeming and recreating work you're doing on this earth. And as you seal us, may we walk confident in the seal you've placed over us. A seal that came not because we earned it or did anything to have it, did anything to, to merit it, but the seal that comes over us because, God, you first loved us radically and you've called us to yourself. God, we give you all praise. We shout out with all the living creatures. All praise, glory, honor, strength, adoration is yours. Amen.